This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Reagan Institute Director of Scholarly Initiatives, Dr. Anthony Eames, speaks with Dr. Ben Griffin, an Army officer who currently teaches at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. They discussed Ben's new book, Reagan's War Stories, which examined how Ronald Reagan's reading of Tom Clancy novels and other science fiction books influenced his worldview and national security policies. Hello, and welcome to the Reaganism Podcast. I'm your guest host, Anthony Eames, Director of Scholarly Initiatives for the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. And I'm very pleased today to be joined by Professor Ben Griffin, who's the Chief of the Military History Division at West Point and a National Security Fellow at the Clements Center at University of Texas, Austin. Ben is here today to speak with us about his new book, available to all of you September 15th on Amazon, I assume, and everywhere you can buy books. Uh, new book is Reagan's War Stories, A Cold War Presidency. Ben, thanks for coming on the show. Great to have you. Thank you very much, Anthony. And just before we get going, I, I should note that uh, while I'm an active duty military officer, uh, all the thoughts and opinions I express are my own, not reflective of the government, Department of Defense, or the United States Military Academy at West Point. All right, well, good to get those uh, qualifications out of the way. Uh, There's a lot to dive into here, uh, and certainly we're going to have a lot to discuss throughout this this hour, but uh, Ben, I I think I want to ask you a question a little bit about how you got into writing about President Reagan from a standpoint of of fiction um, and and just your own kind of personal journey. It's not every day that historians are writing about the way sci-fi and fiction shapes the presidential imagination. How, How did you come to this? So I, I, I joke in my, my preface that uh, this project started when I was about uh, 11 or 12 years old. And uh, when I was sitting there, I was kind of bored in summer. My dad just handed me a book to read. And the book was The Hunt for October by Tom Clancy. Uh, and then, you know, like a good preteen, I hailed pretty much all of them and then kind of went off from there. Uh, but I've just really been interested in the interactions between how fiction sort of depicts the real world, um, the interpretations of it that come across there, and then how it sort of reflects back. Uh, So when I was a cadet at West Point, I did my senior thesis looking at Ian Fleming's James Bond novels uh, and kind of how he took various aspects of sort of the rising consumerism of American culture in the 1950s, injecting into what's otherwise a very British story, but yet the places Bond goes are generally American or the Caribbean or Mexico is not so much in in the UK itself. so when I got selected to come back here and teach uh, and the opportunity to go to grad school at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, I was looking for what I would do for my dissertation. And initially I had a totally different idea that I was gonna do something about uh, the role of the army in peacekeeping operations and then decided that that was not where my passion was. And then I really wanted to get back into this idea of, hey, how, how do these stories influence people? Um, and as I started digging into that, I, I was looking in and saw the, the Reagan quotes about Tom Clancy's novels uh, and just kept digging more and more. And it became a really, really broad and really interesting project to me. And again, it's turned into something that I'm very proud of and looking forward to seeing get out in the world here in a couple of weeks. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that people and readers will be uh, uh, kind of fascinated to read or, or, or maybe it'll spark some of our readers uh, memories is um, your kind of opening vignette, your opening scene 
you, you say that fiction often reflects realities. Well, in your opening scene, you kind of present two realities uh, through satire. That 19, it was a 1986 Saturday Night Live sketch. Uh, why that sketch um, to start to open your book? So the sketch is Ronald Reagan mastermind, right? And you have Phil Hartman playing Ronald Reagan um, amid the kind of burgeoning Iran-Contra crisis. And so there's a reporter in the room with him, and she's asking him a question about what he knows. And he, he sounds senile. His voice is feeble and weak. And, you know, we were all trying to find out what we knew and uh, trying to get to the bottom of this. And I just wish I could tell you more. And she leaves and he says, you know, I wish that I could be more help with the very, very little that I know. Uh, and then Hartman just transforms, right? The, the senile grandfather goes away, like a glint comes into his eye uh, and he storms into the adjoining room and there is all of Reagan's cap national security cabinet, right? You've got Weinberger there, you've got Schultz there, you've got national security advisor there and they're all just sitting there waiting for him. And he launches into this rant about all the things they're going to do in order to cover up the scandal that's unfolded. Uh, you know, that this person's going to resign, the letters of the computer, Reagan already wrote it for him. Uh, they're going to leak this to the media. They're going to quash this story. They're going to bury this person. Uh, all very direct, very clear language. Uh, but then there's an interruption. Uh, he has to go out there uh, and give an award to a Girl Scout. Uh, and the, the mask looks back on there. You know, it's back to the grandfather Reagan. He goes back to the Oval Office says some nice things to this girl scout who sold all the cookies. Uh, she leaves, mask goes away. That's the part of the job I hate. Um, and then goes back in uh, as the staff is just very confused about what's happening uh, and what he's telling them to do. He works longer than night. The staff falls asleep as Reagan is speaking multiple language, calculating exchange rates in his head, uh, doing all this very high level stuff. And it's these two images of Reagan. One is the sort of the face but just sort of the puppet of his administration, and one is the guy who's really behind it, that were very much relevant in the 1980s. And I think in the debate that's followed something about who exactly Reagan is, and you get very different answers on that question depending on who you're talking to, um, not necessarily even based off of partisan leanings, but just based off of who they were and how they worked them. And some of his closest friends and advisors all know that there was a distance to them. Um, that you just couldn't get through. While he was personal, personable and friendly. He wasn't friends uh, with a lot of people. And I thought that was interesting too, that just sort of enigma even to his own closest advisors, uh, probably the exception of Nancy is the one who really got in and, and understood him best. And so using that to set the stage for, for the book, I think sets up nicely to try and figure out why he is closed off like that, but then also get at some of the ways that he thought uh, and interacted with and why then fiction might be an appealing thing for him to do that. Right. Yeah. And you, you really do see his kind of reading lists, his, his love of fiction as an answer to, to this question of who Reagan is. Um, and you come up with some really pretty interesting insights, but one of the things before we get into to who Reagan is in the 1980s and who he is as a president, uh, you start off well before then, obviously you start off, with his childhood, you start off with his days in Hollywood, you start off with his career in the governor's office and the governor's mansion. Uh, and it seems at an early point in the Cold War, Reagan perceives fiction as having a major role in shaping how we think and we define and prosecute and carry on with the Cold War. And 
Is that something that, that Reagan was imagining or is that something that, that's actually true, that, that, that fiction has an a unusual role to play in the kind of geopolitical conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States? So I think it's it's a true thing that that fiction very much has a real role to, to currently play, but also certainly played a massive role uh, in the I mean throughout the Cold War, particularly in the 1950s. Uh, and you see this even through official government policy. You know, the CIA is very active in promoting uh, certain types of literature. Right, they're responsible Animal Farm printed and distributed behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, they're looking to publicize Doctor Zhivago, right? This very powerful anti-Soviet novel. Uh, that leads to some problems then for Boris Pasternak inside of the Soviet Union. Um, Duncan White's Cold Warriors uh, came out, I think about two or three years ago, it was a great job kind of delving into these authors and the way both the CIA and the KGB are trying to influence these cultural narratives. And I think what Reagan really latched onto with this is that uh, he knew that stories matter, right? That stories that you tell and that you enjoy matter because they stick with you. Um, there are things that a good story is one that you're going to retell to your friends. You're going to say, hey, please go read this. Or, you know, what do you think of this? In a way that you're not uh, with a lot of official government policies and memos and, and all that sort of stuff. And so that's why the stories and jokes are so important to him. And I think that is something that the U.S. government rightly saw, you know, throughout the 1950s. Um, you have Christina Klein's uh, Cold War Orientalism talking about the work of James Michener. Something else I also touch on some of my chapters here where, you know, she notes that he was sort of the official translator for DOD to the broader public, introducing him to things like the B-52, uh, talking about the way the Korean War was fought. The Bridges at Tokori uh, is a fantastic Korean War novella that really paints a fairly stark picture uh, of why people in Korea uh, in a way that is engaging, memorable, that is just tough to meet when you're sitting there in a press conference. And so for Reagan, he is consuming all this literature that the CIA is pushing, right? Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon uh, is one of these books as well. Uh, you know, a former communist who broke with the party in the wake of the show trials uh, in the late 30s. And, and so he writes this book that is more or less a fictionalized account um, of what happened in the show trials where they force an original revolutionary to kind of admit to treason that he never committed and accept his execution for the benefit of the party. What's remarkable about that book to me is it's written and we published in 1940 uh, without access to the Soviet archives. And yet, you know, you go back and you look at Bukharin's letter to Stalin right before his execution, and it's pretty spot on with what Rubashov is saying in this book. Now, so Reagan is reading this story, is powerfully moved by it, and he's equating what he's seeing there with his own experiences in Hollywood at the time when he is seeing you know, communists active in various uh trade unions and some of the advocacy groups in Hollywood at the time. And he's seeing similarities between the tactics. And it, it's not the same thing, right? Not, not the same level. It's important to note that. But he's making these connections and it's creating a powerful sense of this is what communists do. And this story conveys that. And therefore, it should be read widely. And I think he carries it with him very consistently for, for the rest of his life, honestly. Yeah. So, so it seems like these kind of defectors, uh, these artists and authors who, who have a kind of major break, mid-century break with, with communism in the Soviet Union, uh, really shape Reagan's worldview. Uh, is that a worldview that he kind of already has developed through other channels and other sources, and it's reinforced, or is it, is it something that, that 
folks like George Orwell uh, are really kind of giving them something new to think about? I think it's kind of a simultaneous development is what you're seeing with this, because uh, Reagan did serve in military during World War II as part of one of the Hollywood units there. He's recording uh, plays and movies uh, in order to support the war effort. He is also involved in narrating uh, reconnaissance videos for pilots out to go on bombing missions in Japan. Uh, and there's one where he appears with the Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, uh, and they're praising the Soviets, right, as the guarantors of freedom. And this is even as they're doing appalling things in Eastern Europe, as they're, you know, fighting and defeating the Nazis, but they're leaving a lot of bodies in their wake uh, and a, a lot of other crimes behind them. And so Reagan clearly has no issue doing this when it's necessary in the 1940s, like most of the American population. Um, you know, and there's no evidence of him criticizing, you know, mission to Moscow, for example, when it's released by the Warner Brothers in the early 40s. Uh, as soon as that shifts, though, he becomes a, a pretty stark critic of it, right? And so you see in this period, you know, 47, 48, as he's getting more involved in Hollywood policy or Hollywood politics, that uh, this starts to to evolve. He becomes, you know, the president of SAG. He appears before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Uh, as a friendly witness uh, and you know, admits that, hey, there are communists in this guild that are trying to do things, uh, but they're not particularly powerful. You know, in his book that comes out in the early 60s, whereas the rest of me, he talks about these experiences he has trying to um, break up groups that are denouncing an anti-communist message in, uh, in HICASP and in SAG and in some of these trade unions, and about his own fear when he is threatened uh, you know, with what he perceives to be an attack on his person that it would mar his face. Uh, leading him to carry a pistol for a little while, right? And so he feels personally attacked. He sees this, uh, what he perceives as infiltration and active efforts by communists to uh, change the tone and tenor of Hollywood movies. And it is all happening, right? This is things that aren't, it's not untrue. I think the, the scope of it is greater in his mind than it is in reality, perhaps. And the effect is greater in his mind than in reality. But it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Um, and so as he's doing this, that's when he's exposed to people like Arthur Kessler. Uh, he starts reading, you know, George Orwell, Homage to Catalonia, for example, Animal Farm, 1984. Uh, Whitaker Chambers' Witness has a powerful impact on Reagan. Um, that's a book that he's going to be able to quote verbatim for the rest of his life when he's talking about uh, the importance of religion in fighting communism. And this is religion sort of in the generic sense of faith in a higher power as opposed to particular religion. Uh, which goes into why he was attempting to reach out to you know, the Catholic Church and his president uh, and other religious groups as well. Uh, but these are creating a power sense of, okay, this is what communists do because he's seeing it in his personal life uh, on a small scale, reading about it with these people who have broken with the party uh, on a broader scale, uh, and then understanding the things that led to their break and trying to leverage on that in his messaging to move things forward in the future, uh, with, again, religion being one of the more prominent roles uh, in that. Yeah, the, the Whitaker Chambers uh, story is kind of an interesting one. If you want to give it a little background on on Whitaker Chambers and and why why his kind of stories and accounts and defection might be particularly uh, informative to uh, to President Reagan uh, when he comes into the office. Yeah, so Whitaker Chambers uh, from New York uh, went to Columbia University, was recruited to work with the NKVD while he was there initially. Uh, just sort of helping to agitate and recruit for uh, other communist parties in the area, but eventually kind of going under deep cover uh, to recruit agents and pass intelligence over to uh, the NKVD and the Soviet Union. Does this throughout the you know mid to late 30s, 
he eventually encounters a NKVD handler who uh, kind of sparks fear in him. And this is at the same time when there's a lot of purges going on both in Spain uh, and with the Great Terror back in the Soviet Union. And his handler implies that he might purge Chambers uh, and also that, hey, uh, some of Chambers' friends were in fact assassinated by um, either this handler's word or, you know, by someone else in the NKVD. So Chambers runs away to Florida, uh, officially breaks from the party. But the thing that he cites with his true break from communism is not those interactions, but rather that the party didn't want him to have uh, his baby with his wife, uh, and they'd do it anyway. And at one point in time, he's looking at his daughter's ear uh, and realizing the perfection of that design and that that design has to come from a higher power. You know, and so in his book, Chambers talks about, you know, how the character from the Hunchback of Notre Dame led him to, uh, oh, sorry, character from Lamer's Rob led him to uh, join communism and then break with communism. And that is the character of the bishop uh, who's first got his palace and lives opulently and is a sign of all it's bad. Uh, but then it also opening up using it as a hospital to to care for people. And so, you know, Chambers crediting that religious awakening with the true moment of his break with communism. Uh, and then the high drama that follows of the uh, Chambers, his trial, uh, ultimately into his, his conviction for perjury. Uh, and, you know, much later on, the revelation that his was, in fact, a Soviet agent, uh, codenamed Ailes, uh, along with Harry Dexter White, who was famous for the Bretton Woods, uh, again, captured Reagan's imagination. So it wasn't a work of fiction, but it reads like a spy novel to him. Uh, and so Reagan seeing this loner uh, inspired by stories, uh, but then finding faith and then leaving because of that, while also comparing the treatment that he sees uh, Chambers' handler give him with that of what he's seeing from some of the directors of some of the communist activity in the trade unions he's been working around, you know, who are threatening to throw acid in people's faces, who are attacking uh, buses and in the studios, equating the two in his mind creates that connection and realizing that I'm going to push this uh, idea of religion. And Reagan becomes very involved in trying to rehabilitate some of the blacklisted uh, screenwriters in Hollywood. Uh, you know, most famously putting in a variety article that, you know, you too can be free men again. Uh, and for him, that religion was the path to that. Uh, so the, the kind of blacklist uh, controversy in Hollywood is obviously um, a heady time in Washington also a heavy time in, in California and in Southern California. Um, if we could fast forward 20, 25 years to another heady time in Washington and in California and Southern California to the Vietnam War, specifically the aftermath of the Vietnam War and the kind of phenomenon that, that, that we now call the Vietnam syndrome, uh, Give me a little sense of uh, of kind of Reagan's response to Vietnam syndrome, what Vietnam syndrome is, uh, and and how that response kind of shaped a, a, a kind of cultural answer to uh, the Vietnam syndrome in itself. So the Vietnam syndrome is this idea that you know we can't get into this major war because we become a quagmire. We're going to get stuck there and we'll be defeated, and we can't possibly use our, our great military might in order to. Uh, get out of a situation like that or to win and prevail in, in combat. Uh, you know, this is coming out of what was a failure of a war in Vietnam, where the U.S. is ultimately unable to achieve its political and strategic objectives there, uh, despite, sorry, despite a good amount of success uh, in tactical level engagements on the ground. You know, and so what Reagan comes to think is that, 
you know, we have all this great success by our fighting soldiers. Uh, we win the majority of our engagements with the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese Army. Not all of them. There are notable uh, victories for uh, the Vietnamese in the conflict, but the vast majority of them do tend to go the U.S.'s way. Uh, and so how do we have this tactical success and are unable to make it a strategic victory, actually a strategic failure? And so what Reagan is seeing is he thinks that it's a question of the national will. Uh, that there was not the will to support the fighting soldier, there was not the will to do what needed to be done in the country, uh, and that the stories that are being told about the conflict are an important part of that. You know, and so as the decade continues on, Reagan is still very vocal on his radio show um, about what happened in the conflict. Uh, he is actively defending uh, Lieutenant Cali, the author of the My Lai Massacre, which is reprehensible. Uh, but it goes into his sense that Cali was somehow failed by the U.S. government and by the American people. Uh, he's particularly offended by what Hollywood has done with the Vietnam War in this time. You know, and so as the 70s roll on, you have a lot of films that are really fantastic pieces of cinema, things like Apocalypse Now, Deer Hunter, and The Killing Fields. But they certainly have a um, particular depiction of you know, the U.S. soldier, the U.S. service member, and it's not a positive one, right? They're all damaged, uh, either engaged in atrocities or uh, dealing with their their lack or their witnessing of these atrocities going on. And so it's a, a very bleak picture uh, of the U.S. military. And this is paired with a political environment where we've just gone to the all-volunteer army, uh, where the military is struggling to rebuild in the wake of the Vietnam War, where morale is low, equipment is generally poor, uh, and the, there's a sense that good people don't serve, perhaps, in the military in the you know, mid-1970s. And so as Reagan's entering office, um, some of this has started to turn, right? and it's worth giving credit to Carter and Secretary Brown for you know, the 79, 80 increased defense spending. They started some of these programs that Reagan's going to expand on. Uh, but Reagan is very clear about his desire to change the way uh, Americans think about the service and to combat this idea of the Vietnam syndrome. And so the great example of this in the archives is the one of the drafts of his speech to West Point. All right, so he came to West Point to give the commencement address in 1981. Uh, and this was supposed to be paired with a speech at Notre Dame to kind of give a sense of a new direction, a new awakening in American policy. Uh, and in this first draft of the speech, there's a, a paragraph that basically tears into Hollywood for its reprehensible behavior and anti-American sentiments. Uh, and in the margin are those movies I mentioned, you know, Apocalypse Now, Deer Hunter, and The Killing Fields. And this didn't make the final cut of the speech, uh, I think in part because, you know, Reagan didn't want to offend, uh, you know, entertainment industry that early, and he still has connections and friends to it. Uh, and that was sort of also in the advice of the administration, but it shows how clearly they're thinking about this mm -hmm. and how much they want to turn the way, A, the Vietnam War in particular is portrayed in culture, but just the American military in general as well, to make it seem more, more noble, uh, and more honorable uh, as they're trying to rebuild American power there. And that turnaround does take place, right? And there, there's some some movies that you you talk about a lot in your book that that seem to indicate that that turnaround by 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 the mid 1980s is is almost fully complete. And uh, what are some of those films that that stand out to you? I think there I think there's one back in the theaters that. Uh, that comes to mind. Yeah, so, I mean, Top Gun obviously is, is the one now with the sequel Maverick, which may actually be better than the original if you're not. Oh, I have to check that out. Yeah, uh, it's really well done. But, but yeah, so I mean, Top Gun, you have this this image of a you know young, good-looking pilots who are engaged in perhaps unhealthy competition, but certainly uh, 
you know, the patriotic masculine competition, uh, thing of the beach volleyball scene there. Uh, with the, the height of American technology, they're fighting a faceless communist force and they beat them fairly handily, right? There's the real conflict isn't between the American pilots and the communists, it's between themselves. They're striving to be the best pilots in service of their nation, right? It's a, you know, a fantastic piece of recruitment for the Navy and the Navy is very involved in supporting it, loaning an aircraft carrier and some planes uh, because the message is so favorable. Uh, another favorite is uh, Rambo First Blood Part Two, uh, right? Where you have Rambo literally going back to Vietnam to refight it, uh, you know, famously asking, you know, do we get to win this time? Mm -hmm. uh, and apparently freed of the shackles that held him behind, he goes to rescue these POWs who have been left behind, uh, which is a play on one of those long-standing myths coming out of the Vietnam War that Reagan was talking about in the 70s of these left behind POWs, right? There's we failed our service members and we left them behind. We abandoned them to the North Vietnamese. And now they're being exploited. You know, and so Rambo part two is, is looking at this. He goes in there. And in fact, there are POWs in Rambo part two that weren't actually there in reality, but he rescues them only after ignoring orders to leave them behind again, right? The, the CIA suit who was running the operation decides it's too risky uh, and tries to, to get the whole thing scrapped, abandons Rambo, uh, but he's able to steal a helicopter uh, fly it away from the prison camp, rescuing the POWs, uh, goes back in and one of the last scenes, you know, is pointing uh, an M60 at the CAA guy uh, who starts to cower before Rambo turns and shoots up all the electronic equipment instead, uh, then goes out, turns down his second medal of honor saying, give it to them instead, right? But very much saying that, no, we, we now won Vietnam, we can, we can do this again. Uh, do you see, we, we, we talked Top Gun and Maverick, Vietnam syndrome, uh, there's probably those out there who would say it, it bears some resemblance to the conversation about forever wars. Do you see any, any sort of parallels between, between that moment and, and that cultural moment and the way President Reagan interacted with it and, 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 and the moment we find ourselves in today? Yeah, I think there, there's some fairness in, in that comparison, right? It's always tough when you have you know wars that have drug on a long time. At the time, Vietnam was the longest war in American history. Uh, Afghanistan replaced that one, and it had an ending that was not what we were looking for. Right? It's, it's pretty clear we did not achieve what we wanted to do in Afghanistan. And so, you know, the narratives around the military coming out of that are are kind of interesting to to watch unfold here. I think one of the things that is different, perhaps, between when uh, you know, the Vietnam War was ending and when the uh, war in Afghanistan ended last year and, you know, the the bulk of the war in Iraq ended, a, you know, a few years ago, although there are still forces doing things in Syria. Um, what you're looking at is that there's been a lot of effort to maintain this reservoir of support for the military of, you know, the, the sort of thank you for the service type of stuff. And there's goods and bad with that, uh, with regards to the the level of interaction the American population has with the military. But um, I don't think it's been quite the same turn or quite the same negative perception that you would have had before. But we're also in a point where we have the you know very low recruiting numbers right now. And there are some questions about the direction of the force, particularly as we're looking to pivot more towards uh, large scale combat. Well, the uh, some of the kind of things you've touched upon um, U.S. military operations against, um, say, peer-level foes or uh, the effectiveness of the fighting force or uh, the national will to, to, to confront the Soviet Union and con confront adversaries of freedom. 
Um, those all seem to make their way into kind of the, the notion of technological romanticism that appears um, throughout the Reagan administration that, that President Reagan really seems to, to promote throughout his time in office. Uh, and you suggest there is a kind of a, a, a background in his reading in, in, in fiction in this. Um, what, are the, what are some of those key works that, that really shaped his ideas about uh, technology and, and its relationship to, to morality and this kind of romantic worldview? So when Reagan gave his Clinton address to the Air Force Academy, uh, he talks about this idea of what technology and a free people can do. His sort of equation is, you know, technology uh, plus freedom equals unlimited potential, right? That this is the answer to not just the Cold War, but to unlocking a greater life for pretty much everybody across the world. Um, and I think, and, and the book I talk about this a lot, it dates back to uh, his reading of Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter of Mars novels um, is where this begins. And Reagan is a huge fan of the John Carter novels, even more so than the Tarzan novels that Burroughs is probably better known for, um, to the point where, you know, in 79, 80, Reagan is writing uh, in response to questions from librarians that, you know, I really wish this character was better known. Uh, I'm a sucker for hero worship, and this is the character that I like to worship, basically. And what you have in the John Carter novels is a former Confederate cavalryman who is magically transported to Mars, uh, Barsoom in Burroughs' book. Uh, and because of the lower gravity there, he is able to uh, leap giant you know, rock pillars. He runs faster, he's stronger uh, because he's used to the heavier gravity of Earth. And he's able to pair this with his own moral compass, um, this sense of you know, individual liberty and freedom to gradually become the warlord of the planets. Um, but a a nice warlord that, yeah, it seems kind of uh, weird to phrase it that way, right? But uh, a warlord who respects individual liberty, I suppose. Um, you know, and he's ending in these books with married to, you know, the most beautiful woman on the planet. Uh, and, you know, it, it's this pairing of, you know, his moral compass, his moral code to do the right thing and to not oppress and uh, enslave people. Again, weird for an ex-Confederate cavalryman, uh, but, certainly uh, something that is coming across in the pages here, and then paired with his ability to use this advanced Martian technology that leads to the success and this utopian sense uh, of where Barsoom is heading by the end of the third book. Uh, and Reagan remains a lifelong fan of the genre of science fiction. Uh, you know, he, he engages it clearly, he has conversations, and in his letters, it's clear that he is very much aware of where the field has gone, uh, and ongoing developments. He's a big Star Trek fan. Uh, at one point, after he's out of office, he goes to visit the set of The Next Generation. Uh, and Patrick Stewart mentions that usually people would ask uh, Patrick Stewart as the, the captain uh, Picard to sit in his chair, and Reagan just sat in the captain's chair on the Enterprise set, right? Um, you know, and so it's it's this lifelong love of the genre. Uh, and I think it's, it captures his imagination. You see the same things coming out in his speeches about uh, NASA. You know, when uh, the Challenger exploded there, that, you know, sometimes these things we think have become ordinary when they're really not, right? That it's amazing we have made something as incredible as going to space seem like a commuter flight. Um, but he would be very fond of equating anything in space to pioneers and to his vision of the American frontier and the American West, saying that this is where uh, the American spirit needs to take us next. Um, Kind of a manifest destiny for the stars. Almost. Yeah, 
he, he does seem to have this kind of go west young man mentality. I mean, of course, Reagan is born in Dixon, Illinois, and finds himself uh, in California not, not too many years later by way of Iowa. Uh, what what brought him What brought him to 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 Los Angeles? Um, so this is where I, I got to you know, talk about how I get to put everything that I love into this book in some way, shape or form, right? I got the Clancy novels uh, that I read when I was 11, thanks to my dad. Um, I've got all the science fiction stuff. Um, and so here's where I got to bring in the Chicago Cubs uh, because yeah, Reagan gets a job uh, working for an Iowa radio station and he is calling uh, Chicago Cubs baseball from Davenport, Iowa, not from Wrigley Field. Um, and he convinces the station to let him go to spring training. So that way he can get uh, stories that add a little more color to his broadcast. And since dispatches there back to uh, the station, he's there talking about how, you know, a, a young cub reporter got into a, a two-hit fight of him getting hit and him in the ground, basically by ticking off one of the ball players and all that kind of stuff. But while he's there, the first year he's able to start a process that his second year leads to him getting a screen test. Um, and then shortly after he returns from a second trip to, to Catalina, uh, where the Cubs did spring training and then, uh, he gets a contract offer and is able to move out to, to Hollywood to act full time. Oh, I didn't, I, I didn't know the Cubs did their spring training in Catalina. Yeah. It was Catalina that. all the way up until I want to say the early eighties is when you really start kicking off in Arizona. With okay. The, the right. league there. Maybe if they move back to Catalina, they'd start winning again. Yeah. I wish that'd be fantastic. <laughs> um, all right. Well, well there's, uh, there's probably one, uh, particular program and initiative that's more associated with, with sci-fi or with technological romanticism or utopianism than any initiative uh, pursued by President Reagan. That's a strategic defense initiative. Uh, what, what opponents would later call, or actually in the moment call Star Wars, which uh, in some ways is still remembered that way. Uh, Reagan seems to come to SDI through a mix of uh, of knowledge of of what's happening behind the scenes in the in the defense community, in the scientific community, but also, again, through his reading of fiction, uh, uh, you know, give us a, some some key points on on how SDI came to be through this uh, this close reading of, of fiction. And so, you, as Reagan gets elected, there a group forms that's the Citizen Advisories Council, um, and it's mixed up of or made up of prominent scientists, people like Edward Teller, uh, former astronauts, uh, Buzz Aldrin is a part of this, senior people in sort of the military industrial establishment. There are contractors from North of Grumman. There are uh, active generals that are involved in this process as well. And then science fiction writers uh, with Jerry Pornell and Larry Niven being the two most prominent that are involved in this. Uh, and the first session of this group is held at Larry Niven's house in uh, Tarzania, California, named for Edgar Rice Burroughs' character. Uh, and what Nivens and Pornell and a couple of the other writers that are involved do is they sort of uh, take the, the jargon heavy stuff that's being pushed forward by, by Teller and others and try and make it into something that is digestible. And they produce this report. Uh, it goes uh, through the National Security Council to, to Reagan and he reads it and likes it. And some of the language actually makes its way into his speech uh, when he's announcing SDI. And that's part of it. Would be better to uh, protect people than to avenge them, basically. You know, uh, you know, Edmund Morris, when he wrote Dutch, uh, rather unorthodox uh, biography of Reagan, wonders about the influence of John Carter uh, on this as well, because there you do have uh, 
walking cities with giant glass domes to protect them from missile attacks. Um, you know, and I, I wasn't able to find a direct link there, but again, I think it goes to just this general love of, of technology and Reagan sense that with technology, you can do anything as long as you let people explore those options. And so I think between that, we're seeing this advisory council and his love of other works, uh, I think Starship Troopers being another one uh, that he's coming to this conclusion that it's, if not possible now, it will be, and it is the morally correct thing to do then. And, and so if you could just uh, give our listeners a little uh, broader context about what is uh, what SDI uh, was and, and why was it, uh, you know, um, considered possible or not possible or up for debate and, and controversial and why Reagan's view of technology had such a big role to play in pushing it forward. And so the, the idea of the program was that we were going to be able to shoot down incoming missiles uh, and there were uh, nuclear missiles being fired by the Soviet Union. Uh, there were a number of different approaches and theories as to how you could do this. Some looking to have land-based interceptors, some looking to uh, detonate nuclear weapons in space before re-entry of these missiles, some looking to use lasers to shoot them down. Um, and what the advisory council decided to do is we don't care which one uh, gets pushed, we just want to make sure the concept gets forward. And really, Pebble is probably being the most prominent one uh, going forward from, from that point in time, again, looking at kind of having a bunch of small projectiles in space, being able to disable the system as it's going forward. Uh, the questions about its feasibility and its expense were the ones that really dominated the uh, debate around time, right? Because these missiles are traveling very fast and there was not a computer with the processing power capable of calculating trajectories for the missiles as Reagan's announced this program in 83. Uh, and it is an expensive piece of the defense budget as this is going along. So it's costing a lot of money it's unclear if this technology will ever be able to, to be fielded. And it's provocative. Uh, there's concerns that you know if we are able to field this or about to field this, the Soviets will feel compelled to attack in order to use their weapons before they lose them, basically. Uh, and so that's this idea that it's impossible, it's expensive, and it is, in fact, dangerous, leads to substantial opposition. Uh, again, Ted Kennedy calling it the Star Wars scheme, uh, and that being the name that sticks, and, and Reagan not loving that name despite loving science fiction. Uh, and you know, within science fiction, it becomes a, a hot point of discussion too. back the idea of how these stories matter uh, and, and, you know, Reagan's sense that the culture matters. So you have, you know, at the time, kind of the big three of science fiction, the ones who sort of moved it from being, you know, something in a, a pulp magazine to a real respectable genre. You have Isaac Asimov, uh, you have Arthur Clarke, and you have uh, Robert Heinlein. Uh, and they get very involved in the discussions around SDI's feasibility, despite their let's say limited actual scientific background in a lot of cases. Uh, they certainly aren't directly working on these issues. Uh, Larry Nevin notes that, you know, the discussion around SDI damn near tore the science fiction community in half, because um, you do have a lot of hostility uh, around this, where you have Pornell, you have Niven, you have Heinlein, all very active in supporting SDI and promoting it. And so people who are in favor of it are grabbing their works, uh, waving around saying, hey, this author said that this is possible. Um, you know, and using them as a credible voice, as credible as any of the scientists or military leadership involved. Uh, Reagan writes a letter thanking the CIS Advisors Council for their support, telling them they're doing a great service to the country. Uh, then you have people like Clark and Asimov who are very much against it. Uh, Clark actually writes a short story that appears inside a uh, internal government newsletter uh, called On Golden Seas. Uh, and it's about a effort to create technology that will extract gold from the seawater uh, but eventually causes the oceans to get drained uh, because the U.S. and the Soviets are racing to fill their gold shortage by 
draining the oceans they have. It's a very clear metaphor uh, or allegory, I should say. Uh, and I think, you know, he picked a President Kennedy in that just to tweak Reagan as well. I don't think Reagan ever read it, right? But that Clark is taking time as, you know, this, you know, huge figure in science fiction to write a story that will have a publicate or a readership of maybe dozens. Uh, I'm not sure how people read the internal Pentagon newsletters. Um, it's telling of his, his view of how important that is. Clark also testifies in front of Congress. Uh, that leads to a, a very nasty break in his relationship with Heinlein, uh, where Heinlein sees him at a meeting in the future and says, how dare Clark as a Brit uh, get involved in US domestic politics and, and who does he think he is? Uh, and Clark backs off on it later on, his opposition saying, yeah, well, maybe it wasn't possible, but it scared the Soviets, so maybe there was value in that. Um, and then Heinlein and Asimov also just completely fall out over this. Uh, they had a long relation going back to when Heinlein got Asimov a job during World War II working in a laboratory in Philadelphia oh, wow. uh, to support the defense industry. Uh, Asimov blames Heinlein's wife for turning him into uh, this conservative, and in his view, moron. Uh, and thinks that Reagan marrying Nancy did the same thing to Reagan. Uh, and Asimov gets the last word in this because his autobiography comes out after Heinlein dies. And he's pretty nasty to Heinlein in the biography. Um, mm. You know, just showing the animosity that was there with this. But in the same way, people latched on to Niven, Pornell, and Heinlein. Opponents latched on to Clark and Asimov. Uh, and, and really, science fiction becomes a major part of this debate and discussion uh, around SDI and the Star Wars program. So that's the contemporary aspect of things. I mean, is there a longer lived cultural legacy and technological legacy of, of, of SDI? I mean, the program is not the same level it used to be. Certainly we have seen, you know, things like the, the Iron Dome in Israel. You have, you do see technology where, you know, anti-missile intercepts are there. Uh, ASAT technology, anti-satellite technology isn't quite the same, but it certainly was on the same boat of discussions around that. And that is almost routine now. We're looking at the ability to shoot down satellites. And so, I think we've seen as the processing powers evolve, the feasibility of the program at least is is more doable, right? Certainly on a small scale, perhaps not in the large scale that Reagan envisioned, but the uh, missile defense is very much alive. And, and any cultural echoes as well? I haven't seen as many of those in the contemporary one. Um, is there a specific one you're thinking of? Well, now that I put the question to myself, I think there was a movie on Netflix not too long ago that came out that... Uh, God, I can't even remember the name of it, but it 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 did really bring up the missile defense concept as this kind of, um, you know, it it brought it brought nuclear weapons back into to Hollywood as this kind of MacGuffin and and uh, yeah, I, God, I can't remember it. We're also not being paid by Netflix to advertise <laughs> the film, so so it's not worth remembering. Right now, is it's more on the the turn side. Um, actually, it's. Uh, Check out the name right here. Yeah, Six and Lou's Earth's Remembrance Trilogy. It's mm -hmm. uh, a book of three uh, science fiction novels. Uh, he's a Chinese author. Uh, books have been translated out in the States, I think for about uh, 10-ish years though, but, uh, and apologies for the light spoilers here for people who haven't read it, right? But it just, the book goes very much into this idea that, you know, the universe is deeply populated, that there are all kinds of alien races and we all want to kill each other. Um, and so, uh, what's happening is that, you know, the galaxy is like a dark forest where animals are going past each other silently. And as soon as one is revealed, then they die because something mm -hmm. nasty gets sent their way. And in the, in the trilogy, uh, an alien race is trying to come over and take over Earth as a new place because they live on a, a planet that's inhospitable to them. Uh, and we end up 
coming up with a deterrence mechanism that's, well, you can come here and take over because you have better technology. Uh, but what we'll do is then we'll just make sure we broadcast where we are to everyone in the universe so that eventually one of them will find us and kill us. Uh, right. Yeah, so it's a, a form of missile defense, I suppose. Right, right, right. Huh. Interesting. Well, um, there's a, there's some other things we should dive into because we can't have a conversation about Ronald Reagan and science fiction without bringing up probably the most important fiction writer uh, in Ronald Reagan's mind and, and perhaps one of the most important fiction authors of the last 50 years, and that's Tom, Tom Clancy. And uh, you really walk through a bunch of Clancy's books and, and their impact on Reagan, their real-time impact on Reagan, and Reagan's real and Reagan's real-time impact on Tom Clancy. Uh, you can tell that story much better than I can. So uh, please, by all means. All right. So I think part of this goes back to one of the earlier questions we had about uh, the efforts to defeat the Vietnam syndrome, right? This sense of malaise about what American power can do and about the American military. And so you know, throughout Reagan's first term, you're seeing these efforts to kind of build up uh, public support for the military, provide better technology for the military. Uh, and so Tom Clancy, who is an insurance agent at this time, working uh, at a family agency kind of midway between D.C. and Annapolis, uh, is very much buying into this, wants to be involved in this, has always wanted to be a writer. Uh, and so he, he writes this story that becomes The Hunt for October um, about a you know, Soviet missile submarine uh, and its crew of officers who want to defect, uh, taking the ship and its advanced uh, nearly silent caterpillar drive uh, to the United States and everything that unfolds from there. And so Clancy uh, gets this published really through sheer luck uh, is, is kind of the way to, to look at it. Uh, he takes it unsolicited to the Naval Institute Press, uh, publishes my book, by the way, thank you very much, guys. I appreciate it. Um, and because they had published an article he wrote or a letter he'd wrote to their journal proceedings uh, a couple of years prior to that. And he was lucky because they had just decided, yeah, we're going to publish original fiction now as long as it is quote unquote wet, having to do with the Navy, given that they are the Naval Institute. Um, and so the, the book gets published uh, with a relatively limited run. It's doing pretty well in the DC area and in New York City, uh, not on a trajectory where it's going to be a international bestseller or something that's gonna make Clancy a household name. Like even his letters, you know, he's talking about, you know, the odds of becoming the next Project Forsyth are, you know, impossible to imagine. It's one a dust jacket with my name on it is what he's talking about with this. Um, but one of Reagan's longest term advisors, Nancy Reynolds, uh, who was uh, director of electronic communications for him uh, when he was governor in California and who was a close friend of Nancy Reagan, uh, sees this book, uh, is flying to Argentina, reads the book as she's flying to Argentina, uh, recognizes that it is exactly the kind of story that Reagan would like, that uh, you know, Reagan being a sucker for hero worship and a particular type of character, right? They're looking at, you know, really the character governed by a strong moral code who is not seeking to get recognition for what he's doing, uh, but only in satisfaction that they have done the right thing uh, is sort of what Reagan's looking for. And that is Jack Ryan kind of voice got emeritus there to a T. Uh, so she gives Reagan this book uh, for Christmas in 1984. He stays up late reading it, goes to me the next day, you know, tells everyone in the room, hey, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sluggish today. Uh, I was up all night reading this book. And so the staff gets the message, right? Like, okay, boss is reading this book. Uh, they all go out and they, they buy this book. Uh, 
So this gets picked up on by the Washington Post, a couple other places saying, hey, all the administration people are reading this book by an insurance agent, uh, Hunt for October. Uh, eventually someone asked Greg, and what are you reading? And he says, hey, it's the perfect yarn. Uh, it calls it unput downable in a Time Magazine article, and it starts to take off. Uh, Reagan hosts Clancy at the White House uh, for a brief meeting, and then there's luncheon with uh, Clancy and a lot of the National Security Advisors afterwards in March of 85. And the next week, the book's on New York Times bestseller list for the first time. And so what Reagan is seeing as he's reading this is basically a fictionalized version of his first term. Uh, so the American military, everyone serving in it, is portrayed uh, incredibly well in Clancy's telling it. So far cry from the movies of the late 70s, The Apocalypse Now and The Deer Hunters. Right? All the American technology works perfectly. The only real threat to American technological supremacy in the book is the Caterpillar Drive, which doesn't actually exist. Uh, all the American technology in the book does exist. Uh, and it works well. And it's, again, showing this narrative that good people using high technology are going to pull off what seems to be impossible. Uh, and you know all the things that Clint, uh, that Reagan has talked about being the downfall of Soviet pop-up right there, their lack of ability to inspire people, their uh, poor production processes, the tyrannical nature of their government, all serve to foil the Soviet efforts to reclaim their submarine, leading to a great victory for the U.S. And so I think Reagan takes this novel as a vindication, right? So it's a novel that he would have liked in the first place because it's got to have a hero that he likes. But it becomes a very personal one for him because it's telling him that people are understanding the story he wants to tell and are starting to tell it. Uh, and that's where he starts to push that book very hard. Cap Weinberger writes a book review of it that appears in the Wall Street Journal and the Times Letter Supplement, uh, treating it very seriously. He's calling it something that anyone who is serious about national security needs to read. Oh, um, Weinberger read it because his longtime secretary said, hey, I have a good story. The big boss across the river is really into this. And so he's like, okay, I got it. Uh, and he, he does this and puts it out, right? And Weinberger uh, has been a long-term book reviewer for the San Fran Chronicle. He did that for 20-odd years uh, when he was in the legislature out in California, uh, and also publishes reviews of The Born Supremacy, Robert Ludlum's book hmm. uh, in 1986, and he rips that one apart. Really? Uh, yeah, he hates that book because the U.S. government does bad things in the yeah. book. They do very illegal things in the book. Um and he laments that it has the inevitable Le Carre syndrome um, and that it's not an accurate story uh, of what we do. And so, again, the administration is very much getting behind uh, the hunt for October for that reason. And so when Clancy visits Reagan in the White House, uh, he asks about his next book because Clancy mentions writing another one. Uh, and Clancy tells him it's about World War III. Reagan asks him who wins. And Clancy says the good guys. And so the next year in 86, that book comes out. Uh, Red Storm Rising, which Tom Clancy co-writes with Larry Bond. It comes out in August of 86, and Reagan reads it sometime between August of 86 and the end of September. Uh, and I can pinpoint it that well because he gets on the plane to go to Reykjavik to have a summit with Gorbachev uh, to talk about nuclear weapons. And you would think, okay, I'm going back to the plane and talk to my advisors. I'm going to throw away its number of missiles, all this kind of technical stuff. And that was never Reagan in the first place. That's not what right. he likes to talk about anyway. But he sits down and wants to talk about the book he just read, which is Red Storm Rising by Tom Clancy. He calls it research because part of the book takes place in Iceland where the summit is going to be. And uh, the staff kind of laughs at him. Uh, that's a good joke, sir. Uh, but he wasn't actually joking. All right. And so you, the plane lands there. They have the summit and they famously come very close to eliminate nuclear weapons in the 10 year window. Uh, but Reagan won't give up SDI and things fall apart. So he flies back to D.C. Uh, and Margaret Thatcher gives him a call. And Thatcher is unhappy with Reagan's performance because uh, 
at the time, the thinking was that the U.S. and NATO needed nuclear weapons because the conventional forces in Eastern Europe that the Warsaw Pact could muster uh, were something that would overwhelm uh, the U.S. and NATO conventionally there, right? The idea that you know, even in you know, active defense and then replaced by air land battle as you've got to prepared to fight outnumbered and win, and, and the win still relied on nuclear weapons to make that happen. Mm-hmm. And so Thatcher calls him up and says, hey, you know, great job, Ronnie, at the summits, uh, except for that part where you almost destabilize the balance of power in Europe. Um, and Reagan's, you know, takes that in stride. He's like, well, I don't really see it that way, Margaret. Um, you should read Red Storm Rising. Uh, I think it shows a good picture of where we're at right now. And so, again, he's recommending this book that is all of two and a half months old at this point in time uh, to his closest ally and partner uh, to understand how he sees the world. And what the book is, it is, as Clancy promised, a fictionalized World War III. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have a fight between the Warsaw Pact and NATO. Uh, NATO, the good guys, do win. Uh, it is not the first book to tell that story and not the first one to tell that story that Reagan read. Reagan also read The Third World War by General Sir John Hackett, uh, but never really referenced that one publicly or, or talked a lot about the book. A, I think Clancy's a better writer than Hackett is. He has better narrative structure, better characters. It's easier to get into the book. Uh, but I think really the ending of the books is telling. You know, In The Third World War, there is a limited nuclear exchange between the Soviet Union, who destroys Birmingham, uh, and the NATO forces, which destroy Minsk. Uh, in Red Storm Rising, the Soviets are given the order to fire nuclear weapons, and their general refuses, and there's a coup, right? And so throughout this Red Storm Rising, you know, all the American stuff is working perfectly. Airland Battle uh, is working as advertised. All the new systems that the administration brought in over the last five, six years are, you know, just killing Soviet tank formations in massive quantities uh, after initial earth setbacks in the conflict. And then the war ends uh, as favorably as possible. Uh, for NATO uh, as we're looking at this. And I think, you know, that that's what helps make it sound to Reagan is that it's a miniature war game for him that is realistic enough. Uh, and I think you can argue for or against what would have happened uh, had the Soviets and the U.S. gone to war with the stuff in 86, right? But certainly by 96, uh, I think it's pretty clear that U.S. technology had far outstripped and passed where the Soviets were. And we kind of saw that with Desert Storm, where the best U.S. stuff just plowed through the best Soviet stuff at the time. Um, and so then that plays into Reagan's longstanding nuclear abolition, where if we don't need it to guarantee peace in Europe and in the world, uh, it's no longer a protecting element. It's now dangerous, unstable, and apocalyptic. And therefore, why not get rid of it when I think I have an advantage that the other side doesn't perceive with regards to our relative conventional strength? So... The Soviet Union, of course, looms large, and Reagan's thinking about the world and looms large in the books he's reading. Uh, it seems like Reagan has an interesting way of separating the Soviet system, the Soviet government, from the Soviet people. And yet again, the the, the role of fiction, the role of humor seems to play uh, a big part in that. What do you see as the role of humor and fiction in, in, in how Reagan went about keeping those two, two groups separate? I think it really humanized uh, the people behind the Iron Curtain for Reagan. And he saw them as victims of the state and victims of the system uh, in a way that you know, is somewhat surprising for someone who was so stridently anti-communist, right? So 
you know, some of his favorite jokes, uh, you know, one he likes to tell a lot about, and it actually appears in a Clancy novel as well, uh, about a businessman traveling from New York to Moscow, right? And so the businessman gets to a taxi in New York, going to the airport, uh, and he asks the cabbie, hey, uh, you know, you're in college, so where are you going to be? I don't know. I haven't decided yet. Businessman lands in Moscow, gets another cab. Uh, that cabbie is also in college, uh, so very educated cabbies here. And, you know, ask him, hey, uh, what are you going to be? I don't know. They haven't told me yet. You know, same thing, uh, joke that appears in Red Storm Rising when, you know, the defector has sent this letter to, you know, the high command to brag that he's taking their submarine and going away with it, right? Ramius is just kind of thumbing his nose at the, the pop hero with this. And it's sitting there in the stack of mail to be sorted. And the guy whose job it is to sort the mail looks at it. And says, oh, well, end of the day, when they... As long as they pretend to pay me, we'll pretend to work. All right, and, and off he goes. Another one of Reagan's favorite jokes, and that ends up biting them because it delays their response to Ramius taking their October uh, <laughs> and defecting it. Right? And so I think that that's things that are shown that they're people just like uh, you know Americans are. And that goes into you know his famous you know Anna and Avon speech, uh, you know, in 83 as the tension and heightened there, imagining you know this American couple and this Soviet couple who uh are magically trapped by a storm and able to speak freely to each other. Uh, and that they wouldn't talk about war and national politics. They would talk about their kids, what their hobbies are, what their jobs were, and they'd leave as friends. Uh, and so that's a very consistent theme in, in Reagan's approach to anti-communism. And I, I think you see this in the 50s when he gets involved in trying to rehabilitate the blacklisted uh, with Edmund Dimitrik being the most prominent of those ones as well. Um, and you can see some of this in Kessler's Darkness at Noon where yeah, Rubashev definitely deserves what's coming to him uh, as, you know, sir, he's going to be a victim of the state, but he also set up this horrible apparatus. He's betrayed people. But there are other characters in there, like one of the partisans that served in the Rubashev, uh, right? This uh, guy who lives in a dingy apartment, uh, you know, works as a, a janitor, if I remember correctly. And, you know, he's saying that this, this guy speaking, I don't recognize his speeches anymore from the, you know, inspirational commander of the Russian Revolution that I fought under. Uh, and he prays, right? He's praying every time uh, he hears the voice just to to acknowledge who Rubashov was and everything. And so again, this role of religion being in there, the sense that religion is secretly lurking under uh, Soviet control and burst free once uh, those restrictions are lifted. Uh, advisors like Jack Matlock and Susan Massey are also kind of pushing this narrative, trying to get him to identify very strongly uh, with these people as, again, victims of their state rather than willing participants in uh some of the evils being perpetrated by the regime. Well, it's, uh, it's certainly been a tour de force of, of Reagan's bookshelf over the last uh, hour here. And I think we, normally what we do is we ask our guests on the podcast to, to recommend their favorite work on Reagan. But I think there's a better way to do this. And that's to ask you what's your favorite book that among Ronald Reagan's favorite book. <laughs> I mean, I, I still have a soft spot for for the Clancy ones, right? And so I think uh, Red Storm Rising is probably my, my favorite one right now. It's probably also the most relevant one right now uh, with its World War III scenario. Uh, you know, you got similarities to that and Ghost Fleet, what uh, August Cole and P.W. Singer did a couple of years ago to you know use fiction to tell a story about war. Uh, Clear and Present Danger by Clancy, I think, is his best written work. Uh, it's also his most complex in how it deals with Ronald Reagan, um, because it's very much Clancy reacting to the Iran-Contra crisis. Mm. Um, 
And so it creates a couple of extra layers there where Clancy still is clearly a Reagan supporter, um, but is trying to, to wrestle with his own response to, uh, again, the illegal activities of the administration uh, in order to try and funnel weapons over to the Contras uh, in Nicaragua. And so, you know, I think that thoroughly speaks to the nature of this relationship and the complexity of it, where you have, you know, fiction influencing policymakers, influencing fiction, uh, and then influencing the public uh, in a way that is is tough to kind of navigate and to see, but it's, I mean, to me, and hopefully to everyone listening, endlessly fascinating. Well, I think that this podcast has been a, a great plug for some great works of fiction, great plug for people to get back in the books themselves. Uh, I'd like to thank you once more, Ben Griffin, for joining us. The new book is Reagan's War Stories, A Cold War Presidency, Hot Off the Presses, September 15th. Uh, everyone, please go get it, and we'll make sure we link to your show notes, link to the book in the show notes. Thanks a lot, Ben. Thank you, Anthony. Really appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.